This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. As President Trump draws diagrams on hurricane maps around Alabama and Walmart bans the sale of handguns and certain ammo, we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, including how compliance led to Walmart's decision to ban guns and the ammo. We look at the compliance game plan for the first 18 months that you sit in the CCO chair. Wells Fargo reads a New York Times article and starts an internal investigation after ignoring internal whistleblowers on the closed account scandal. A Texas woman violates the FCPA in Africa adoption. We take a look at customer blind spots in due diligence. And Jace talks about how monitors can help in the administrative proceedings process. How does compliance factor into Brexit? And Jonathan Marks talks about the role of the board of directors as shown in the Juniper Network's FCPA enforcement action. Odebrecht is spanked again. And um, the podcast series this week I'm featuring, I have a new podcast series, Converge 19, where I talk to some of the upcoming speakers, including Rebecca Ream and Matt Doherty, Ubi Seminary and Mark Thurman, Norm Hodney and Jane Arno. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 174 for the week ending October 4th, 2019, the Reflections on Converge 19 edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. And as we watch the inexorable march of the Astros towards the 2019 World Series Championship. We reflect on Converge 19, which concluded this week, and also talk about some of the week's top stories. So, Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It was great getting together with you in Denver and uh, look forward to recapping Converge 19. All right. Well, why don't we hold that till the end? And uh, I know we had uh, actually quite a quite a bit of FCPA compliance and ethics it's this week. So, uh I'd just like to start, Jay, uh, with three cases that came out after we recorded uh, the most recent this week. Um, So although they came out last week, we're going to talk about them this week. And uh, September 30 was the SEC's 
fiscal year end. So we had a triumvirate of FCPA enforcement actions in addition to multiple other SEC enforcement actions. But uh, I just wanted to highlight these because each one had some pretty valuable lessons learned, I thought, for the compliance practitioner. Barclays Bank, uh, well known for their uh, ethical foobars uh, down the, uh, the roads, um, got in trouble for sons and daughters hiring in Asia Pacific. Uh, nothing new there, but really a couple of points, Jay. Uh, first of all, you had uh, senior executives who were unaware that uh, their activities were covered by the FCPA. And more importantly, you had uh, compliance professionals in the same region who'd never read the company's policies and procedures. And, and that is as basic as it gets. Uh, but I think it's a good reminder that when was the last time you tested uh, senior executives to see if they even knew what the FCPA was or your compliance professionals on your APAC team had read your compliance programs? Uh, Westport Fuels case had not only C-suite involvement, but CEO direction of the bribery scheme. So this is what our colleague Jonathan Marks would call control fraud because she not only overrode the internal controls, but she lied, cheated on certifications filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, around her FCPA-directed bribery actions. So it's going to be interesting to see if she um, she was sanctioned civilly. It's going to be interesting to see if the CEO is also sanctioned criminally for her actions. And finally, quad graphics. Quad Graphics got into trouble because they uh, overexpanded through merger and acquisition in, into a foreign market when they had uh, really no compliance programs. I shouldn't say really. They had no compliance program. So uh, if you move aggressively into foreign markets, you need to be aware of those risks. And also, I wrote about what I call the shamness of their bribery schemes, which was a traditional bribery scheme paying through third parties, but it was uh, multiple third parties with the same owners, the same physical address, they had invoices with the same information, they had invoices uh, consecutively numbered, and, and it was really com a complete sham. So some basic lessons, nevertheless, important lessons for the compliance pr practitioner to remind themselves of going forward. Uh, Jay, next up, uh, a gentleman named Patrick Bizimana uh, wrote a very interesting article in the FCPA blog. You want to tell us about that? Sure. Uh, Patrick was writing about the African Continental Free Trade Area, which is AFICTRA, I guess, was adopted in uh, Kigali, Rwanda on March 21st of 2018 by 41 African countries to create a single market for goods, services, and cross-border labor movement. So think of it as our NAFTA, but for the continent of Africa. Uh, this will bring 55 member states together of the African Union, covering a market of more than 1.2 billion people and a combined GDP of more than 3.4 trillion. Uh, the association also hopes to create a liberalized market for goods and services, the movement of capital and people to facilitate investments, building on initiatives and developments. Unfortunately, African Africa countries are among the most corrupt and the AFTA does not have any anti-corruption provisions to promote integrity in the customs and trade practice. According to Transparency International CPI from 2018 and the World Bank's control of con corruption in 2017, 48 of 54 African countries score below 50% and 14 of 52 score below 50% respectively. 
So the question is going to be is, while this is an excellent agreement and it has some potential to really uh, have an economic boost in that region, if the union does not include anti-robust provisions and how it's going to monitor its members, the, the uh, uh, group may not be as successful as it wants to be. Uh, next up, Tom, you're going to talk to us about uh, the world's most famous soccer club, Man United. So although this is the the club for Mrs. Compliance Evangelist, it is not the club for the Compliance Evangelist. So just note on the record that uh, go Liverpool Football Club, you'll never walk alone. Uh, nevertheless, Dick Casson wrote a, a really a fun little piece, but it also brought up some, I thought, some pretty good lessons. Uh, Man U is the world's most popular uh, soccer slash football club. It has 1.1 billion fans and followers worldwide. Its valuation is at 3.9 billion with revenue last year of 770 million. That's an excellent return uh, for evaluation. Of that, 200, 212 million came from sponsorships and 125 million came from merchandising and, and licensing. All of those. Um, are uh, uh, contain uh, foreign components for Man U. It's a UK-based company, uh, but it is also listed uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. Actually, I should say it's a Cayman Islands company, um, but it does uh, 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 it did an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange, so it's subject to the FCPA, and it uh, also has ticket sales and broadcast rights. Uh, certainly the broadcast rights are also international. It points up really uh, a comp- uh, how a company, which you might not think would be subject to the FCPA, certainly is. I talked about in the last uh, uh, part about uh, Westport uh, Fuel Systems, or excuse me, uh, Quad Graphics and how they expanded internationally. Uh, if you're a sports club and you go travel internationally, if you sell internationally, if you sell a T-shirt internationally, um, you have an FCPA uh, risk. So uh, a good uh, a good lesson uh, and a fun one and a great way to think about sports in the FCPA, uh, not with my normal razzing, ragging, or uh, otherwise extolling the greatness of the Houston Astros. Yeah, I don't know how to follow that one. I, I guess we'll just jump right in. Uh, we got an article from the Risk and Compliance Journal from the Wall Street Journal. Justice Department closes investigation over Eni's Nigerian and Algerian activities. Uh, for many of you who have been listening to us, this has been a matter that's been going on since 2010. Uh, the DOJ has closed its investigation into Eni's Nigerian and Algerian activities without taking action. The company reiterated that neither the company nor its management was involved in any alleged corrupt activities in relation to the OPL 245 transaction in Nigeria. The company, along with Royal Dutch Shell PLC, has faced allegations of bribery around the acquisition of rights to this lot. Uh, the company had voluntarily disclosed the allegations to the DOJ and the SEC, and an ENI, and an ENI spokesman didn't immediately respond. So uh, the U.S. Department of Justice has essentially closed the investigation, and uh, this is uh, an area, Tom, with your first, with your previous experience in the um, extractive industry. Any other thoughts on uh, how this matter concluded? 
Uh, yeah, Jay, first, before I get to that, let me just uh, say in breaking news, the DOJ also uh, announced late yesterday afternoon that it was closing its probe into Shell, E&I's partner on this block, and Dylan Tokar over at the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Corruption Journal also reported that. So now we have both cases closed by the Department of Justice. For those who might uh, not remember the background facts, um, both Shell and E&I paid to the Nigerian government money, which they knew or at least suspected would be paid out as bribes uh, f- to uh, government officials in Nigeria. The FCPA does not prohibit payments to a foreign government. It is prohibits payments to a foreign government official. So um, legally, uh, I don't think the FCPA covered this situation, and I never thought that. Nevertheless, both Shell and E&I are in a criminal indictment and are, are going to stand trial in Italy over this. And for E&I, it involves the current CEO, the former CEO, as well as the company, with Shell, several senior executives who, uh, in intemperate emails, basically ask, is this money going to be used to pay a bribe to specific foreign government or Nigerian government officials? So it, it really points out a difference in focus and in, in legal focus. And um, as the world becomes more tuned and sensitive to the international search of bribery and corruption, uh, it may move towards uh, prosecuting more cases like this. It is extraordinarily difficult, I would think, to know uh, or be able to find out if money paid to a government is, is, is then turned around and paid by that same government as bribes to its own government officials. So it would raise a level of complexity for every compliance program going forward. Nevertheless, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, at least uh, in this case, uh, Shell and E&I knew or suspe- suspected that bribes would be paid. So we're going to certainly watch the um, uh, Italian trial on this, Jay. Great. So next up, Tom, we have uh, a piece from the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. Uh, some l- attorneys from Cleary and Gottlieb have talked about how to avoid an inadvertent waiver of privilege. What's that about? So um, uh, they're really looking at uh, – inadvertent waiver of privilege uh, in an internal investigation. Uh, and it's a, it's a great review uh, that you need to, uh, everyone needs to re-familiarize themselves on because you don't want to waive the privilege inadvertently. You may choose to do so voluntarily, but that's your, your company's choice. So they talk about the attorney-client privilege and attorney work product, what those are, confidential supervisory information, uh, which is uh, a term used in uh, federal institution excuse me, financial institution investigations. Uh, always be aware of blocking statutes or restrictions on cross-border data transfer. And, of course, uh, in the uh, European Union, personally identifiable data. And then finally, don't forget the old basic confidentiality agreement that may come into play. And I've certainly seen certain, certain instances where employees of a company under a general confidentiality agreement have to sign <coughs> a double-secret confidentiality agreement around a uh, specific investigation or a merger and acquisition. So uh, use those tools uh, if you uh, if you need to. So, Jay, you are still on a roll on your <clears> – I think you're on uh, part three of a five-part series in Corporate Compliance Insights on what is the role of the CCO's role in culture. You want to tell us about that? Sure. So uh, this week, uh, as Tom said, I take a look at – how involved or uninvolved the chief compliance officer should be in promoting culture in an organization. So the question we ask is, who is responsible for culture? 
Within the C-suite level, you may get a response that the CEO, the head of HR, or perhaps even the general counsel is responsible. These disparate responses underscore the uncertainty of who really bears the responsibility for culture. The duty most often falls to the chief compliance officer, meaning the CCO and the entire compliance function need to be able to coordinate the various inputs and support mechanisms that guide employee behavior. The CCO is often the face of the ethics program, kind of like the spokesman for the company who helps to drive behavior. The CCO should work to eliminate barriers to aid in driving business success rather than being perceived as the perpetual department of no. In hiring and recruiting, obviously, the nuts and bolts of the process runs through HR, but the CCO can create a culture wherein the organization would only hire the right type of people. A CCO can work to make sure candidates understand the organization's position with regard to fraud and other misconduct and that it is incorporated into the review process. A CCO or corporate compliance function should also maintain a lead role to make sure new employees understand their responsibilities. When managing upward, the CCO has an equally critical job. It's clear that the best practices for the CCO is to have unfettered access to and provide information to the board. This task is much more difficult without leadership and the support of the board. So what are the warning signs of an unethical culture? They can be a wide variety of behaviors and actions, things like disrespectful attitudes, favoritism or nepotisms, bonuses, low employee morale, a lack of teamwork, a large number of anonymous whistleblowers, and employees who report being uncomfortable about talking to their supervisors about this. These are the kinds of things a chief compliance officer needs to be on top of and communicate to the board. And it's up to the CCO to understand and have his or her finger on what culture is, where the challenges are, and what needs to be done. So that's uh, episode three. And next week, I'm going to take a look and explore how a company can begin to assess its own culture. This article was one of the um, more interesting ones in terms of really what it didn't tell us. And it didn't tell us uh, really where compliance is going in the future in terms of enforcement. It was a great review of where we've been over the past 10 years or so, actually 14 years, starting with Syriana. But uh, the author believes that we're going to be heading towards other corporate scandals. She started with Volkswagen and the opioid crisis leading into uh, prosecution for uh, violation of human trafficking laws, uh, companies participating in the extraction of minerals from conflict zones, or violating uh, consumer patient or employee rights. So uh, she thinks the DOJ may move in other areas, but it really didn't uh, take a look at um, kind of FCPA enforcement going forward. So, Jay, let me ask you a question. Is it true that for every risk management strategy, you need a crisis management strategy? Uh, That's what French Caldwell tells us, and this comes to us from the analyst syndicate. And uh, it starts off with a sobering um, subject because French wrote this uh, during the time of Hurricane Dorian, and he talks about the differences between threats and risks and risk management and crisis management. So uh, the risk of being hit by a hurricane if you live in the southeast is given a season has a very low probability, but for the region as a whole each year, the probability of a hurricane gets close to 1.0. Crisis management is is what you do when risk management fails. 
no matter how much effort you put into the enforcement of construction codes to limit the risk of major hurricane damage, roofs will be blown off. No matter how well built the storm water systems are, there will be flooding. And no matter how many warnings to evacuate, unfortunately, there's still people who are left behind and need to be rescued. The limitations of hurricane risk management come from limits in our abilities to predict the risks and their likely impacts. Failures to apply risk intelligence or a lack of understanding of the risk when making decisions on options, changes in the environments that lead to changes in risks. So, as you said, Tom, crisis management is what you do when risk management fails. Every risk management plan should have a corresponding crisis management plan, and often the crisis plan will be just to accept the risk. For instance, you may accept the risk that your uninsured boat on stands in your backyard will be a total loss should a hurricane hit. But on the other hand, if the boat is expensive and worth it enough to you, you might remove it upriver several days ahead of the storm. So uh, an interesting take on a a sobering subject. But, uh, you know, uh, my takeaway is that the more that you do ahead of time in your risk management, the better prepared you can be and you won't have to have that. Uh, drastic crisis management. Whistleblower legislation is now working its way through both houses of Congress. And we have an article by um, lawyers at Choate Hall. Uh, Originally, uh, Choate Hall was a Boston firm, although I think they're national, if not international now. But they uh, look at the Whistleblower Protection Reform Act, which passed the House in near unanimity. And the Whistleblower Programs Improvement Act, which was introduced on September 23rd by uh, four bipartisan senators from the um, from the Senate. The uh, Senate Act clarifies the definition of a whistleblower under the anti-retaliation provisions of Dodd-Frank uh, after the Supreme Court eviscerated it in Digital Realty Trust. So um, they uh, basically said that uh, uh, or rather, uh, also it requires prompt payments of awards uh, by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the CFTC uh, with a determination within, within one year after a, a submission is made. Uh, we've got cases now that are five years out, and I know that's frustrated uh, quite a bit. It would protect whistleblowers who report internally prior to the time they report a, uh, in, uh, a matter to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. So it would certainly do what I think every compliance practitioner wants a whistleblower protection and anti-retaliation program uh, to do. It's going to be interesting to see if companies actually uh, put their money where their mouth is and uh, support this legislation. Uh, many companies have kind of tacitly uh, uh, applauded the evisceration of Dodd-Frank protection uh, by digital realty trust. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the lawyer's final word is, and I think this is the most important, what you need to do is um, if uh, the Senate expand, uh, uh, passes this, they believe it will be a major expansion of whistleblower rights and remedies, and employers need to monitor the recent legislative actions and be prepared to admit or rather uh, implement any necessary changes into existing reporting mechanisms. So uh, turning an eye towards this week's five-part series, I know you were joined by Phil Fry and, uh, on a five-part podcast, which is sponsored by Varent, and you took a look at the future of financial service compliance. What were the highlights of that, Tom? So, Jay, uh, every once in a while I come across a product or uh, generally a product 
that is really cutting edge and really unique and out there in terms of innovative. And what Verit has done is one of those things. Um, Verit has come up with a way to take audio recordings, voice recordings, and digitize them and then integrate that digitization, basically ones and zeros, uh, into a a stream of data that comes from financial traders. So this is financial services compliance where everything is captured digitally, um, including voice voice communications. It's you know well known. I can't remember if you've been a trader or not, but uh, I know you've had uh, a varied career. Nevertheless, uh, communications between traders are recorded, and they're recorded because things happen so fast. If it doesn't get documented, you've at least got a backup tape. That's been going on since at least the 90s. Uh, But nobody's been able to digitize that. Um, So we've got that digitized. You can do keyword searches and, you know, e-discovery tools. But if you can digitize it, you can put it in a uniform workflow. And that's what Varen's come up with. And I found that incredibly innovative. And the five-part series uh, talks about the Varen process for that. Uh, Part one was challenging the accepted wisdom, which is the, the tool they've come up with. Part two on Tuesday was how do you capture it? Uh, part three is control, and by control they mean how do you uh, make it uniform and universal so they can be used. Part five is sustaining your compliance program through all of this. And then uh, Friday on part five, it was oversight, which is really ongoing monitoring in a broader scale. So it was a really interesting podcast. It was so innovative, I actually cross-posted it for the entire week on my uh, innovation and compliance podcast. So you can check it out on either one. I'm definitely going to do more work uh, podcast rather with Varen and maybe even some work going forward, but these guys are really onto something and uh, the innovation they have in financial services compliance. When we can move that to anti-corruption compliance or other types of compliance, I think it's going to be extraordinarily helpful and useful, particularly around ephemeral communications and uh, other voice information that is currently has to be either run through the discovery tool or handled literally by hand. So uh, my, my question, Tom, would be uh, how does it handle quid pro quos? Well, um, quid pro quo is given a value, and that value would be quite high on the risk scale, and it would uh, have a huge blaring horn that would run underneath the blaring horn in all caps, bold, underscored, perhaps even in italics, impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. All right. I'm sorry. I had to throw my little bit of snarkiness in. But on uh, what we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, uh, you and I both returned from Converge 19 in Denver, which was a wonderful conference put on by our colleagues at Conversant. What were some of the things that struck you uh, by being there? Uh, What what type of things did you see that really made a difference? Uh, Jay, I'd like to maybe give you the kind of three highlights for me. Um, The first one was, uh, and probably I felt as uncomfortable as everyone in the room did, when one of the keynote speeches was a gentleman who, actually uh, personally led the effort to have the UK uh, anti-slavery law passed. Uh, And he, as you would guess, he talked about some horrific stories. Uh, They were generally not in sexual exploitation, uh, but they were in uh, people who were brought to the United Kingdom and and treated as slaves, literally. And how he stumbled upon this problem and how he, in 2004 and five, he went to police departments in, in Britain and they were well aware of the problem. They said, no one will prosecute it. We can't do anything about it. 
The people in power control this. And he worked and he worked. And um, the, the last chief of police he talked to told him this over, a, I think, a six-hour conversation of which he was sworn not to secrecy, but he couldn't reveal the source. And the police chief said at the end of the conversation, so what are you going to do about it? And it was a great example of someone who took up a challenge and literally uh, wrote position papers, did research, put it in front of the British government, got it in front of Theresa May when she was, before she became prime minister. And then after she became prime minister, she had the full support, or he had the full support of the British government uh, behind him and got it passed. Um, But it was really just gut-wrenching. He started by asking the three questions. Let me see if I remember what they were. Raise your left hand if you are wearing clothes. Raise your right hand if you uh, have a uh, phone. And stand up if you eat. And he said, you are part of the international uh, slavery trade because uh, one of those three items, goods or ser- goods, is uh, produced by a slave. So uh, pretty uncomfortable, but I think certainly a good message. The second thing was the just the incredible quality of the presentations. I mean, you gave a presentation, you, Dan Chapman, and Jonathan Marks. It just blew me away. But frankly, everybody's presentation blew me away. And that's what uh, compliance professionals want to see is that high level of discussion with actual takeaways that you can implement Monday when you get back to your office. So that – and then the last thing was we were in uh, one hotel, uh, not really a confined space, but a defined space. And the conversations that went on – during the breaks, uh, during, uh, before and after the, com- uh, the conference part, uh, they had catered breakfast or served us breakfast, served us snacks. There was a huge lobby and sitting area in the hotel where you could go sit down and have a cup of coffee with colleagues. You and I did that a couple of times. I did that with uh, Eric Feldman, your colleague. I did it with Jonathan Marks. I did it with half a dozen other people. Matt Kelly and I recorded a podcast there. So uh, really the the atmosphere led to the discussions that we uh, we both enjoyed uh, and I think are able to, t- once again, take away actionable items for not only uh, the CCO, but the types of work you and I did. What were your th- kind of three highlights? Yeah, so thanks for asking. One thing that I thought was a uh, cu- couple things that were interesting is um, first, uh, Patrick Quinlan, who's the co-founder and CEO of Converse and kind of got up in his best uh, TED Talk manner, not wearing the mock turtleneck, but he talked about the virtuous circle. And uh, this is very timely, especially with the business roundtable decision recently about that the corporation exists for more than just making profits for the shareholders, but we need to take care of our coworkers, we need to take care of our community, and we need to take care of our environment. And uh, Patrick talked about you know how they look at this, that it's not a linear thing, but it's a circle and there's feedback and it affects everybody. And later on in the presentation, they uh, unveiled their new uh, conversant dashboard portal. That was very impressive. So that thing was, uh, was very interesting to me. And then it led into a presentation by Jose Raul Gonzalez, who's the chief corporate officer at Cementos Progresivo or Progreso. And again, this was uh, something that tied in that uh, the, Business was founded in the early 20th century by a European immigrant, and he wanted to build a cement factory in Guatemala. And people are saying, 
well, what do you need a cement factory in Guatemala for? And shortly after the trials and tribulations of building their uh, factory, there was an earthquake. And what was discovered was the cement blocks survived, but the, uh, the clay blocks that normally everybody used in Guatemala broke. So the, uh, they stopped making adobe bricks. They started making uh, cement bricks. And this company wanted to really have a community. So they provided education for students. They built like a whole city. And it's very interesting that it took a, you don't think about a, com- a company that would be in Latin America that would have such foresight and build such a lasting uh, connection with their community. So that moved me as well. And then the third thing I'd want to highlight is Ali Raisman, who is uh, a gold medal gymnast for the U.S. And uh, she talked about her uh, responsibility to young women in the not only the sport of gymnastics, but also all young men, women on how to protect themselves, how to be a whistleblower, and how to uh, you know raise an alarm. So these are just a few of the uh, the folks who really moved me. But I think one thing that Conversant really has uh, latched onto here in the Converge idea is this is not a, a cattle call for ethics and compliance folks. This is a place, like you said, where practitioners can get together. I think there was about 400 people, and it's an easily manageable size conference. And by putting folks in this close proximity, uh, like you said, Tom, there are great conversations. And uh, the important thing is that you take uh, the relationships that you make at a conference like this and uh, use them moving forward into the following year. So, Jay, um, as everyone, including you now know, uh, the Astros won uh, their opening ALDS uh, uh, game with Justin Verlander pitching a one-hitter through seven innings last night. Um, and the, your most hated team, the Yankees, also won. So it looks like the inoxorable slog to the Astros-Yankees matchup is still on its way. I uh, still hope you're on the uh, the Astros World Series train, at least through the uh, through the Yankees series. Uh, you haven't really opined about how you feel about the Dodgers, but uh, uh, all I have to say is, Adam Turtletop, if you're listening, you're about to go over three, baby, three straight World Series losses. So uh, yeah, putting it out there. So uh, you want to take us home? Sure. On behalf of Tom Fox the very shy compliance evangelist evangelist who does not support the Houston Astros and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 174 for the week ending October 4th, the reflection on Converge 19 edition. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm available at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll check out the five-part podcast series with Varen I did this past week. Uh, it was a really innovative uh topic, uh, rather product that we talked about. And I think it has a lot of implications for the anti-corruption compliance practitioner going forward. Thanks again for listening to this week of 
episode of This Week in FCPA, the Converge 19 edition. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the stories that catch our eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.